Hey everybody, welcome back to the Overrun Podcast. My name is Ed Bowder. I'm Dan Schwester. I'm Kevin Mazza. I'm Anna Ryan. And today we're going to talk a little bit about the, quiz, the quick history of helicopter EMS. Um, we are fortunate enough to have amongst us a career flight paramedic. So, Kevin, talk to us a little bit about the background history of helicopter EMS, and then uh, as the show goes on, we're going to talk about safety and concerns for helicopter transport. Yeah, I can give you a little quick background. So, medevacs have been going on pretty much since World War II using uh, fixed-wing aircraft. The first real use of helicopter um, medevacs were seen in Korea and used for injured soldiers because everything in EMS starts with a military of course it does, background right, yeah. beginning from TXA to tourniquets to Reboa. Quick clot. Yeah. yeah, everything. It all starts, especially for traumas. So back in 1969, the U.S. Department of Transportation provided a one-year grant to purchase and operate three civilian helicopters out in Mississippi. After one year, the costs were never picked back up because it was considered a very expensive endeavor. But over the course of time, people saw this in a way to further and just became a thing. So today there's like, it's kind of evolved into three different models of HEMS in the U.S. The oldest one is the traditional model. Um, hospitals contract a third party operator to provide the pilot and the aircraft and they provide their own medical personnel and equipment. I happen to work in a system that's similar to this. It's called a, a hybrid. The, it's hybrid with the community-based model, which is the second type. Uh, the helicopters are personnel, basing, medical staff, everything is supp- uh, supplied by... Um, a con- an outside contractor or company, and that's right. typically a for-profit venture um, as helicopter EMS is not regulated in the same way that ground ambulances are through insurance acts and things like that. Um, medevac projects can charge just about whatever they want for their services. So we'll get into that a little later. And then the third model is a government-operated, basically government pays for it, much like... Um, in our state, we have North Star, which is the state police. They operate their own medevac. Maryland state police Maryland is probably state one of the most common prob- yeah. well, and more famous ones along the East Coast. Right. So that's almost, you know, paid for by your tax dollars. Right. So that's like kind of like the quick history. It's It's been around for basically as long as paramedics have been, maybe even a little longer. Um, but it's evolved into its own like kind of entity that's a little separate from the rank and file paramedics and um, ground EMS because it's often considered a very different atmosphere but uh right. i'm gonna tell you right now it's really not it your environment changes but what we do in practice really doesn't differ much from the ground i think it's interesting that helicopter ems actually predates the national scope of ems model yeah it's interesting yeah, yeah i think like the you know the white paper comes out in 66 and then in 69 we're like what if we use these aircraft mm-hmm. yeah. what if we do something like that? and then you know, late, like and then, yeah and then later oh, they decide like more, yeah. oh, let's do let's do this for on oh, the ground seeds. <laughs> for, for realsies. For realsies. That's yeah, that's it's really real. interesting. So the, I think one of the, thing, the misconceptions that a lot of people might have um, pertains to crew components. So we know that in a lot of systems, you know, you have a medic and a nurse. Um, and there's also systems that have a nurse and a respiratory therapist. Some places have flight physicians. So it, is there a particular, I guess, preferred crew component? Or the, how does that actually, what, what, what should people look for as far as like the big picture for that? Uh, here in the United States, for the most part, in, in most traditional community-based projects, it's a nurse-medic model. Um, when you have third-party models or ones that belong exclusively to a hospital, you might have a doctor on board, and you could certainly have a respiratory therapist. You have specialty teams that go out, like um, NICU, for tra- um, transports and retrievals of like high-critical um, neonates. You have all sorts of specialty helicopter services, and ECMO teams are flown out, particularly from their home bases in cities, out to these places to pick up, initiate ECMO, and bring, and bring them back. So the typical component is a nurse medic for most routine operations but especially things you'll get a doctor or respiratory therapist on board 
Now, is that if there's a specialty request, is that something like you get kicked off the aircraft for that, and then they just go with the nurse? So, or? G- uh, generally speaking, actually, the paramedic typically remains behind and operate as a safety officer. Okay. So, um, as with everything involving flight, uh, weight and balance is a uh, consideration. So, the pilot has to know who's coming, their weights, the weight of their equipment, and obviously if the equipment's FAA approved to be operated in the aircraft, which is always a nice hurdle to try to jump when you're retrieving an ECMO patient. <laughs> uh, um, but for the most part, the paramedic will remain not really doing much patient contact, just ensuring that everyone has um, properly fastened headsets because a lot of times you're flying as someone who may not be experienced as a flight crew right? because the first thing uh, as a flight personnel is you're a crew member first, a patient care provider second. In the same way, when you're driving an ambulance, you're a driver first, paramedic second, because if something happens, you are all part of the same team to keep each other safe. So how much, I guess the next question would be, like, how much clinical care is a paramedic typically involved in on an aircraft with a patient? Because I know I, you're in an EC-135. That's correct. So And that's most aircraft in the country, right? That's that's pretty much the, uh, if not the standard model, it's like the pretty much the same size for most medevac aircraft. Right. So it's, it's Eurocopter 135. Um, it's a fairly small patient compartment. It's right. always smaller yeah. than you think. You get inside, and it's much smaller than you it's think. It's the opposite of the uh, the Willy Wonka hat or the Mary Poppins bag. <laughs> it's like Doctor, Doctor it's, like, it's like yeah. the Willy Wonka. Bigger on the inside. It's the, it's like the it's inverse TARDIS. It's the Willy Wonka elevator. You get in. It can go anywhere in any direction. It's just really small. Right. All right. So if you have – so how do you and your partner kind of separate, like, who does patient care? A lot of it is based on trust. So my partner – I can only speak to experience of my partner and I or partners I've had. Sure. So uh, my partner's a nurse, and she – we do two types of things. So we have seen jobs, we call them our 911 dispatches to severe traumas, car accidents, and um, high-fidelity medical patients who are too far from a specialty center like STEMIs and strokes. Sure. And then obviously we do inter-facility transports. So in terms of patient care, on the scene job, I function as a par- any paramedic would. I more or less, I don't want to say call the shots, but I'm in control of the care between establishing an airway and basic logistics on scene, whereas we do an air hospital Chances are those patients a little bit beyond my scope of practice. I assist the nurse between setting up pumps, managing the vent, and getting a patient prepared for transport. So if I'm an EMT on scene and I request an aircraft, I guess, I, so the question I guess would be who is, I guess, the crew chief or who would be the person that I talk to about the patient care aspect? Uh, you're So on a, on a scene of like a 911, you're most likely, you're going to give a report. We like to do kind of like when you go into a trauma where you say a report out loud when everyone's ready to be listening. Right. And then we get, all, we get hands on. Um, but for the most part, you're going to want to talk to me on a scene because I'm going to be standing at the head of the patient. Uh, my partner is going to be performing an assessment. I'm going to be listening to the story, and then she's going to report what she finds to me, and then we're going to manage the patient from there. And is that the typical kind of operation, or is that just more how you and your partner operate? For, so at my shop where we do this, that's pretty much a standard operation. The paramedic goes to the head of the patient, the nurse performs the assessment, and we work together as a team that way. Um, and conversely, on an inner hospital transport, I go and perform an initial assessment of the patient. I go do a stroke scale, manage their pain for a STEMI, give any narcotic medications I have to. She receives a report from the sending facility, takes care of paperwork, and then we come in and we get the patient going for transport. So that's, I, that, that's good. I think it's a really important background because I feel like a lot of times when we talk about helicopter EMS, we describe like, oh, an aircraft is going to come in. People come in and do stuff, and then they leave. There's a lot of so logistics I, that go into it, yeah. Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm interested to hear... Yeah, there's you know, a choreography. It's, right, it's well, just, like, there any, really like, just is. like anything else, like it's, a cardiac yeah. rest, like a dance. That, no, that's even... And it's a choreography we practice very often. Every My partner is the model of consistency. I'll, to her credit, she does not miss a beat. Every, But the that's the most important thing when you're doing something as dangerous as you know a helicopter does. 
everything should be routine between what you do when you first walk in the door in the morning to how you're prepared for your shift to how you operate on a job. Mm-hmm. You should have some kind of routine set guidelines to make sure you are safe and doing everything right because if you miss something, the the consequences could be pretty disastrous. And that's something that's hugely different how we operate in the field on the ground. I, like We always talk about on the ground how safety is our principal concern and I'm not convinced that we're very good at it. How many people strap, oh, I think we're we, awful at how many people strap your life pack in? When you're transporting. <laughs> oh, <laughs> all the time, Kevin. Yeah. No, so, th- but, that's, but that's exactly what I you like think about. I like to live dangerously. I have to, I make, <laughs> so part of that, part of that routine is going through a, a quick checklist in my head and making sure every piece of equipment I have are brought with me. One is returned with me. I also okay. have to come back and get it. And two, making sure it's properly stored for flight. Well, and that's a big thing that came over from flight to medicine in general, right? Mm-hmm. Atul Gawande wrote about that in the checklist manifesto, where his whole thing is that having checklists tends to get like laughed at a little bit. But it reduces errors exponentially, mm-hmm. you know. Like, and, and you know, the the running joke is like David Lee Roth with his brown M and M's on his tour rider. But it wasn't but, crazy. Yeah, nope. but it, you know, again, 160 steps. We want to make sure that you hit every one. So it's I, again, that's something I think we talk about on the ground. We're like, oh well, we're always concerned about safety, but it's not something we're very good at. Whereas on an aircraft, that's it has to be priority one ha- because nothing else yeah. works otherwise. Yeah, like I said, I'm crew member first. I'm a provider second. So in the EC-135 where I operate, um, typically I sit up front with the pilot and act as a co-pilot on dead legs. So I'm an extra set of eyes and ears listening for other aircraft on the radio, looking out, and basically I have about 50% of our you know, peripheral vision in a 90-degree scope from the front to the 9 o'clock of the aircraft. So I'm all responsible, just as the pilot and the person in the back is, for having our eyes out. Right. And a um, big part of that is during what we call critical phases of flight. That's running up, getting a helicopter spooled up for flight. That's ascending and then descending for landing. That's the sterile cockpit. Thing, sterile right? cockpit, yeah. Right. There's no talking. Yeah. So is that... Unless pertaining to, hey, you have an aircraft one o'clock high. Like right. There's, there's like, an aircraft call, coming call, at us. It, you should talk when you see something. If you see it, call it out. But other than that, you're not talking about patient care. Even right. I have I have a critical patient in the back. Any, My eyes should be out. So everything I need to do to keep that patient alive should be done before we lift or and if it... It has to wait till we're up to level flight. Mm-hmm. So, what are some? What do you think? I guess ballpark are some of the biggest misconceptions that ground crews might have about helicopter EMS in general. Uh, first and foremost, we are not as fast as you think we are. Sure, the helicopter goes fast, but the, all the logistics that go into getting a helicopter up to flight to you and then to the hospital could, believe it or not, take longer than it would be just to put your patient in the back of the ambulance and start driving and do everything on the way yourself. That's interesting. Yeah, because so most people think it's it's magic. No. Um, just a pre-flight checks alone um, could take up to six minutes, and that's going quick. So what do you have to go through for a pre-flight? Well, for the most part, that falls on the responsibility of the pilot in charge, um, which is just the pilot in our case. Cause okay, so what takes up that six minutes? Well, first and foremost, um, depending on the weather, there's going to be a weather check. He has to submit a risk report. He has to contact, since we work with a, um, with an outside vendor, he's got to contact his operational control center, get cleared for flight. And uh, naturally, he's going to keep an eye on the weather. And if the aircraft has to be brought outside from the hangar, um, do checks, remove any plugs, depending on the time of the year. There's a whole lot of things that go into beforehand. Um, meanwhile, us as crew members are collecting any equipment we might need for the flight that we haven't taken already. Um, speaking to the our control center or the regional um, emergency medical control, getting coordinate numbers for where we're going to land. So... It all starts with going out to the aircraft, walking around it to make sure nothing looks out of place, latches are closed. Every it, 
It should look the same every time. Okay. So open latches, open fuel caps. And I think that's something that ground people don't get is that it's not about just turning the key and going. There's a lot of small things that have to be done every time. Well, right. It's it's different than a ground ambulance. Which yeah, you don't. Is, it's, you not, don't it's not a fancy I, ground ambulance. I, I, I get that, but I don't think people get that. No, no, I'm, I'm agreeing with you. I'm saying I don't think people understand that right. it, like there's other things that have to happen. I think the common misconception is well, if I call an aircraft, they'll like just grip be it here. and rip it. Like yeah. no, it doesn't so work that we, way. So we we try and my partner and I we try to monitor the radio um, for local channels for any potential jobs that might come in, so we can just shave off like that minute of the whole prep. But the whole process of starting up an aircraft for a flight takes four to six minutes, and if you're doing it in four consistently, you're probably missing something and you're being unsafe. So six minutes should be the minimum time you should expect for that aircraft to even get up to That's idling to prepare That's for flight. That's interesting, right? So we look at a we used to look at a six to twelve minute window to work. If you're doing it, if you're doing it fast enough, you're missing something. If it's taking too long, you're doing something else wrong that you're also missing. Like it's about the average time it should take to get that aircraft ready for flight. So let's talk about actually putting the aircraft up, um, or like deciding I guess the course of treatment for the aircraft. Is there any benefit? If you're, you know, you're a ground crew to putting an aircraft on standby before having them lift. No, no, (laughs) it's still going to take that six minute window from and we when it's a go, it's a go. We go. So generally Um, speaking, would it be better, I guess, for a a field provider if there's a thought that they're going to require an aircraft, whether it's extrication or whatever else, just request the aircraft, put them up. So there used to be they don't really do it anymore. Used to be able to put an aircraft on standby and it was a flying standby. The aircraft would go up, it would lift, and it would wait for confirmation and where to go. Um, due to operational costs, I don't believe that's standard practice anymore. In most places, it's not where I work. Because well, fuel costs money. Fuel, Yeah, fuel costs money. It's a very expensive... Jet A is expensive. It's very expensive. Well, not only that, it's time on time components on. of the aircraft. I mean, rotor blades have a certain amount of hours before right. they have to get replaced. Um, Everything. Everything turbines. Every, write down all. the screws. The our mechanic knows what screws were put in. When, our mechanic in particular is very good, but they know when it's put in. That every he's got a whole list of things he goes through, and when an aircraft hits X amount of hours of use. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty. It's impressive, and he's impressive. And I every year I'm gonna get him like a nice dinner for keeping me alive every year because he is <laughs> he a is nice the Christmas card, family photo of the dogs. Yeah, he's probably the most important person at that base. Easily, <laughs> easily. Shout out yeah, no, that's I, that's that's believable. So, I request an aircraft. Mm-hmm. I'm standing on scene. I look up, and it is a clear blue sky. Yes, not nothing that I see at all. Uh-huh. And my aircraft request goes through. Mm-hmm. They say we acknowledge your request, and they decline for weather. Yes. Explain to me the process behind that. And after wh- after Ed proceeds to curse you out, yeah, up and <laughs> that's down. While, while I'm stomping mad on the ground, that's explain fine. to me why an aircraft would decline a request when I see clear blue sky. That's great for you. I'm congratulations. <laughs> so <laughs> there's some there's certain things that the FAA allows us to do and certainly not to do. So you might it might be blue and beautiful. You're 25 miles south of my aircraft base. We consult something called the uh, METAR or however you want to pronounce it. Good base, name. Uh, yeah. Name. It's it's good, another good band name. So it stands for Meteorological Aerodrome Report, and usually, generally, these are automated messages that are generated at airports through an automatic system. I'm going to put out Meteorological Aerodrome Report. Yeah, also a very good band name. That should be oh, your first yeah. single, yeah, no, self-titled yeah. album. <laughs> so um, Not bad. I, these are updated uh, regularly within an hour, over an hour, they're kind of considered expired. So you might be standing at a bluebird day down wherever you are, but I might have like a 300 foot ceiling, overcast skies. FAA regulations 
is 800 foot ceiling, two miles of uh, visibility from where we are in a non-mountainous area. The company that we're partnered with actually takes that a step further. It's a thousand feet visi- uh, thousand foot ceiling and three miles visibility just to be extra safe to give us an extra buffer. Sure. So the weather could be nice by you, but if I can't lift legally by FAA standards, I'm sorry, I can't come for you. Right. So typically, if I request an aircraft and I get one decline for weather, what are the odds I'm also going to get two or three declines for weather? Um, if, it, if the weather's poor where you are, 100% of the time. Right. If the weather happens to be poor where this base is, you might get another aircraft coming from a different direction that can get to you. Okay. okay. So typically, I, it goes from in New Jersey, it goes and from that's request to one to another. And that's something that people don't get. Right. Yeah. If, if, the, if the weather's fine by you and you need a helicopter to request one, if they decline, they'll ask a second one. And if they're coming from a different direction or don't have to fly through the weather that we're at, you could probably get it. And we're I also notice this happens a lot in uh, summer, too, with thunderstorms. Yeah, like pop-up things, showers. Yeah, and, things uh, pop up and visibility goes to zero and mm-hmm. maybe the ship you were expecting isn't coming. Right. And um, we're also, we're very lucky in our area. We have a glut of aircraft in our area. This is why, That is not the case in most of the country. No. But between, you know, New York, New Jersey, and Philadelphia, we, we have a lot. Like, we have so many that there's a Philadelphia aircraft that's in New Jersey. There's two. Like, oh, yeah, that's right. So it's just, it's wow. a, you know, and like, we're not trying to shout out any particular organization. It's just there is, there's 13 11. in our state. There's 11 in our state. 11. And that's not, that is not the case in most places. In a lot of states, especially in the Midwest, you have the aircraft. Right. So a lot of times those are community-based projects where a hospital doesn't even supply them with the staff. It is a generally a, uh, a third party who has a helicopter, everything, right. soups and nuts, and they are just based in your community because you're paying them to be there. Mm-hmm. Are there a significant amount of flight projects that have an aircraft, whether, you know, specifically in this instance we're talking about rotor wing, that there's an aircraft and then they just take hospital staff and ship them off to the aircraft to do a mission and then come back. That don't have their own staff, you mean? Like just a helicopter that doesn't have a crew. Uh, well, I, I don't component? mean like they just go to the airport and just hijack a helicopter, although that's a great plot for a movie. Can be done. Yeah. Uh, we can write that over the, the summer. Expendables for the Expendables <laughs> 4. Medevac 1. <laughs> no, but so there's there's an aircraft that say it's, you know, it's owned by the hospital or a hospital system, right. but the staff for the aircraft is, say, like, you know, a... Uh, the ICU team for that day is that a, a that, flight? That's a that's a model a, that exists. So yeah, there's some models exist that where the um, the crew component is actually working in the hospital, and when they get a request for flight, they go to the helicopter. Usually, right. a lot of times that helicopter is based on the rooftop of the helicopter or nearby where they'll hey they get a mission they fly over, and by the time they get there, you're expected to be ready to go. Right. So that's that's a that's a possibility, especially with a lot of NICU projects that go and do retrievals for high risk, you know, high critical care uh, neonates. A lot of them are NICU nurses that come straight from the NICU to right. go and retrieve their patient that they're going to take care of. Well, and the advantage to that would be they, they're already at the hospital. The patient is already at the hospital, right. so there's care that's being provided to them. Is there any but that... They, but they all have to be flight qualified. Yeah, absolutely. They all okay. have to be... It's not about we're taking, you know... You just don't go pick like, hey, you busy yeah, right now? Mary and Jennifer today are going to jump on the helicopter <laughs> and go get this kid. <laughs> you just right. get tapped like you'll do. <laughs> so depending on which project you're, you're a part just, of... Here, you might, take this headset. You're yeah, good to go. You might be part of a critical care team. You're not specifically meant for flight. You can take ground ambulances too. Your job is okay. to go and retrieve or to bring patients to and from your hospital. But Whether anybody that gets into this type of aircraft needs to be qualified to the to the uniqueness of the environment. They should be. Um, where we are, you have you should you have to be. I know flight projects where you don't have to be per se a uh, flight paramedic certified. Well, and so that that's an interesting thing. So, and and just for the sake of background, you and I are both board certified flight medics. Correct. Um, 
the exam itself. Do you, did you get your cert? I don't remember. If it, or no. You, okay. Um, so with this exam, the exam itself kind of covers a broad range of geographic areas. So it yes. doesn't really, it doesn't go into, you know, okay, so you're flying on the East Coast of New Jersey, so you have to worry about this, or you're flying out of California or Nevada. Mm-hmm. They kind of cover a, a broad, uh, kind of a big swath of things. So one of the interesting things is that, again, like you were saying, not a lot of places require a particular board certification to actually fly. Um, they just kind of say, like, you'll now you're flying today. So go a little bit through the certification process and what 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 is the foundational difference between, say, a flight medic and a ground medic, or is there one? Foundational difference? I wouldn't say there really is one. The generally, becoming a flight paramedic, you need X amount of experience as a ground medic. So you need to have everything you know as a ground medic cold, right? right. And then you learn a little bit extra to become a flight paramedic between flight physiology, safety, operations, and then you get a little further outside your scope in terms of things because uh, in certain places they can do central lines. They can do like um, pericardial synthesis. Mm. So these are things that are in your scope and depending on your state where you practice them, but you have to know it for the exam. And uh, most people end up taking a course prior to prepare, but foundationally operating as a medic on the aircraft is the same as operating on the ground as a critical care paramedic. It's just a different environment. So it's just like a, a different element of training, not so much a you, higher echelon of, you, or whatever else. Yeah, you have to think a little bit differently right. because chances are you're going to be receiving a patient who's already had the initial care that you know. So you're basically just thinking in the next step. So I know I've talked at length in the show about the things I see that, great, we do things great in the field, but then after they get into the hospital, maybe what we did wasn't so great because I'm seeing the back end of that. Right. So... You know, learning that is really more of a function of my experience rather than any preparatory course or anything like that. Um, but there are a few more medications I got to know, particularly drip rates, pump operations, vent settings, which is something a lot of ground paramedics don't have to know. So there is some stuff that comes with experience, but n- necessarily to become a flight paramedic, you may not need right away. But you got to have your ground or standard practice stuff known. Right. So I, the reason I ask is I think it's important to get that out there because there are you know, new EMTs, new paramedics, where you'll talk to them about, like, well, this is, you know, why are you, something that I ask a lot of my classes, like, why are you here? What is it you're looking to do? And I'll have, you know, brand new EMTs, and their thing is, like, I want to be a flight medic. And it's like, okay. like you have Yeah, to, I've heard that. Like, you got to, that's, like, that's, a, that's, and that's a great. That's frequent like, career a, goal. Like, it's a good aspiration to have. That's great. But, I again, I don't know that we talk about, like, the time component that has to get into it. Like, you yeah. can't just, like, rock up to an aircraft one day and be like, you're mine now. No. Uh, <laughs> now, now I'm on that. I do that now. licks the rotor. So <laughs> my helicopter. It's mine now. It's my helicopter. So that's an interesting point. Kevin, this is a, you've achieved, let, let's argue that it's the pinnacle of the career path for in the, paramedicine. In the United States, yes. In the United States. And it is because you're doing really high acuity things. You're doing it in a different environment. In theory. In theory. Um, you have a young EMT student or a young paramedic student who says to you, you know, Kevin, I want to be you. I want to. Let's I break wanna, that in for a second. <laughs> I want to be you. Kevin. Nobody has ever said that. I want to, or or no, I want to be a flight paramedic. It's, Kevin it's, or it's the beard. beard. We we see the beard. Yes, like, the beard. How God. do I get? No, this, look, this is a thing that we need to consider. No, if we're going to yeah, advance I'm, the profession, no, you're 100 percent right. We have I've to been seek mentorship, right. and people look. I got to admit, it's cool. You guys swoop out of the sky. You come in. It certainly got, looks cool. cool. You got 
Oh, it's it's cool. it looks cool. You got cool helmets. You got night vision. You got flight suits. They mm-hmm. look very comfortable. But seriously, like somebody comes to you and says, wow, I want to do this. So how do you mentor them? How do you, what do you suggest to them? Uh, first and foremost, and I've been asked this a few times by, by when working ground shifts, they're like, sure. hey, so you're, and people I've never met before, hey, I know you, you're a flight paramedic, right? And I'm like, right. yeah. I'm like, so how do I, how'd you get there? How do I get there? And the best advice I can give is, and pardon me, but give a shit about what you do. Be clinically competent. Don't just go in and do your alphabet soup classes and you need like a strong clinical record. Like don't have like QAs because you were cutting corners. You get there, you do your job, you do your job right. And then you keep pushing yourself forward. Learn the next thing. Go to a That's an interesting point. Like take yeah. pride in your profession. Yeah. No, educate yourself. You don't, you don't, you don't get to the position by just kind of like, Oh, and I've been a paramedic for five years. I guess I'll just go be a flight medic now. Like, you got to be it's it's very difficult one you got to find a project who's going to take you without any experience which is the hardest part and ask any nurse who's a new grad who doesn't have her BSN it's hard to find a job so for something as specialized as this you got to have I don't want to like to my own horn about having the resume to back it up but I have a very clean clinical record I don't have any QAs I've never been reviewed by the you know the state board of health for I've never been called to court for any I've never been sued for malpractice to my knowledge but <laughs> Yeah, but you got to you got to have That's a strong, you got to have a strong clinical record and you can't you got to you got to prove and go through the testing to get to you know the interview process is stressful enough you got to prove you, you you can you can hang you got to you got to be able to well, cut your jib or something you got to be strong <laughs> wow <laughs> okay no, that's that's valid. I, I the cut of your jib thing. <laughs> I was looking I for like an old timey term to like say, listen, you got to be on top of your game. <laughs> well, you got to be worth your salt, is because what I it's say. A, there because, are no Russell Jimmys, right? Because <laughs> let's be honest, it's a small community. It is very small, and somebody coming into the flight profession, their reputation is going to be scrutinized. Absolutely. So your your professional reputation matters a great deal. If you are somebody that cuts corners, if you are somebody that is not up on the science, if you're somebody that doesn't think that progressive, you know, care of your patient is important, flight's not for you. Right. So I've actually performed interviews for flight positions for people coming into my project. And I also had the good fortune of working in a project that operates a helicopter. So my clinical record and disciplinary record were right just like that. As soon as I applied, they pulled it. They looked at it. That's a, mm-hmm. You will get cut if they find something they don't like. If they don't think you'll be a good team member, you have any safety concerns, you won't even be considered. Well, and that's one of the most important things because, again, the, the central component to you know air transport is going to be safety. Yes. So if it's been shown through you know whether you call it clinical QA or whatever else some type of evidence that you cut corners yeah that's like that has to be the first flag that goes up there's clinical QAs like forgetting to document like a BGL sure there's clinical then there's clinical QAs performing an RSI procedure before you call med control like Ooh. yeah yeah and they're, they're they're very different things yeah <laughs> yes. not all QAs are this are, are are the same like I've forgotten the document because they asked me like uh, so you had a QA back in April of 2013. What was that? And I sat there. I was like, "Uh, what?" Yeah. Like <laughs> they and the the flight nurse interviewing lean on the table. He says, "Think hard. You hungry?" I was like, and then I don't know why it's time. I was like, "Oh, I forgot to document a BGL because I've only had again like two QAs in my career, and that was one of them." Right. And then I had one minor uh, 
accident, which they asked me again, do you remember what happened on this date at this time at this hospital? And I said, that one I knew wow. was like, I backed into an ambulance by accident. <laughs> and they said, why? I said, because I wasn't using a spotter. And they said, do you think that's a problem on the helicopter? I said, yes. And I've never done it again. Yeah, I, do <laughs> not, I do not plan to back the aircraft I, into an ambulance. Well, I mean, I've never, I never operated by a spotter again after that because right. that's what, that's the stuff they want to hear. They want to know you're safe and you're that's most important, important thing. I can't hammer that enough. Okay. Be safe. And they'll and prove that you are a safety minded person. And that's again, that that's gotta be the biggest thing. And that so. you're paying attention to detail. Right. Yeah, because um, like at least flight strikes me as and I've never flown, but it's attention to detail. Absolutely. Uh, it is a hundred percent attention to detail because like I said, just going with your pre-flight walk around is you're looking at the details of the aircraft, making sure you don't see a latch pin turned open or the chain from the O2 tank hanging out of the, under the O2 cap. Okay. Because that's stuff. Or fire or rotors. Fi- yeah, fire or rotor <laughs> you missing. Definitely notice fire. Or something is minor. <laughs> or something is minor. The pilot might have missed like frost on the tips of the rotors on a cold right. day. Like that's really important to note. Yeah, so, no, that's those are all big deal. And like again, the the safety thing is something again that we talk about and I think kind of miss. Yeah. So I'm an EMT, I'm a medic, and I'm not sure if I should call an aircraft or if I've made the right decision in calling my aircraft. So walk me through, I guess, some of the decision making processes of actually requesting flight and how I can, I guess, better differentiate how I'm requesting this aircraft. All right. Um so I'm, I'm probably going to catch a lot of flack for this because – so there's a mnemonic um, that I actually fairly recently discovered called FALTER, F-A-L-T-E-R. So we can run through that real quick and part of your decision-making process for calling a helicopter. Now, full disclosure here, I love what I do. Call me for anything. I will come to you. <laughs> Give me an excuse to fly. But that being said well, – <laughs> <laughs> Think here's here. I want to lead off with this. So I actually have some time doing fixed wing pilot training myself, and one of the things that my instructor told me is that, that every takeoff is optional, but every landing is mandatory. In other words, you're coming down somehow. So the safety oh, aspect. That's a good point. That's good. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I like that. And yeah, and then he said like in the in the long history of things going, you know, hundreds of miles an hour in the planet Earth, the Earth is yet to lose. So, oh my God, that's two. Yeah, he was kind of. It was dark. I miss you, Vince. <laughs> I'll come back and do more wow. training. Jesus. Translation of all this. He wanted to make. A bitch. But he wanted to make. And I was young. I was about twenty years old. He wanted to make sure I was mentally prepared for. Hey, dude, you're gonna take something up, uh, like you know, twelve hundred feet into the air. Are you ready for if something goes wrong mentally? Like, right. You know the the consequences of making a mistake. Gravity's not. Yeah, just I a good don't idea. think people it's get that. Like, you know, your ambulance breaks down, like. On the highway, you just pull over to the side of the road. Right. right. You can't pull you over know, to the side of the air. Your helicopter breaks down in the middle of a flight. You got oh, one attitude. shot. You're a brick. You got yeah. You got well. I mean, so we have something called auto rotational, and we can go into that in a little bit. But I I encourage my ground crews like what what the helicopter does is a big risk, and it's a big risk to the flight crew, and it's going to be a risk for your patient going to the hospital. You sure. have to ask yourself: Is it worth the risk of that flight crew and that patient? Na- um, I mean, I'm always going to say think of the flight crew, but definitely think of your patient. Um, so we'll go through this falter acronym, and first and foremost, F is for fear. And wow. no, not being afraid of heights because you're not going anywhere or your patient. Don't ask them if they're afraid of heights. Fear is really you should ask yourself, are you afraid to take care of this patient for the 20 or 30 minutes it's going to take for you to get to that hospital? That's a good point. I, I, think, yeah. I, think, that's a, I think that's a huge point. Because I, I think that exists. 
Yeah, and I trust me, as somebody who was a ground paramedic, obviously before, it's a fear I experienced myself. And I've had a patient where, like, we need a helicopter. The weather is really, really poor. It's not happening. And I was afraid for that 30-minute trip to the hospital. So I didn't have the out as a young medic at that time calling for the someone to come swoop out of the sky and save me by taking the patient off my hands. But you have to have the, the the wherewithal to notice like am i calling this helicopter because i'm afraid to take care of this patient or am i calling it because this patient actually needs to get there faster okay yeah that's that's an important thing so i i, I want to get through the rest of this this mnemonic but um do you think that's a prevalent thing as far as aircraft aircraft requests are concerned of being afraid of taking care of a patient for a yeah. long trip um i don't know uh that's if you ask somebody, they're going to lie to you and say, no, of course I'm not afraid to right. take them. But I know it exists. And you can s- – coming in on some patients, I've seen the relief on their face of me showing up for a patient that's pretty sick. Right. And, like, you could have definitely made it to the hospital faster if you just drove than waiting for me to get here. Right. Because ten minute f- you're 20 minutes away. I got, like, a 10-minute spool-up time because it's cold and i got to take it out of the hangar. And then I got a ten minute flight over. You would have been pretty much there by the time the I'm lift. By the time I'm lifting with your patient, okay. you would have been there, and you can see the relief in their face. So fear definitely exists okay. with, with a patient. All right. What's next? Uh, a access. So, is it convenient helicopter access? And in New Jersey, oh, it is. Um, mm-hmm. But are you going to be wasting your time and just trying to remove a patient to a landing? Like, is it going to be too far out of your way? to get your patient to that LZ versus going toward the hospital. You go in the opposite direction. Is the ter- Again, we live in a very flat area, so access isn't generally a problem where we are, but out someplace else, maybe you're up in the mountains in Colorado or wherever they have mountains. Um, <laughs> do you have an access? They keep them other places. Like Kevin. Mississippi, do they have mountains? No. Uh, but if you have an operational landing, if you don't have a landing zone, you can't land a helicopter. Sure. There, and the FAA is very strict about where they put their helicopter. It's not like the London Air Service will land right in an alleyway. If they if it fits, we sit. Uh, <laughs> oh, my God, we're cats. <laughs> yes. We need we need a landing zone, and uh, generally speaking, a lot of them are pre-designated by the state as acceptable landing zones. Right. So how, how big does an LZ have to be for an aircraft to put down? For us, it's uh, 100 by 100 feet. Right, and that's for the 135. Now, that's there are the there are larger aircraft that require larger LZs. Yes, um, but for my operation purposes, uh, 100 by 100, you could probably skirt with 75 by 75. As long, make, just make sure it's flat and clear of obstacles. That's all our pilot really care about because a lot of our guys will put it anywhere if they can and like oh, it looks legal to me right yeah okay close enough put it, no you know they're not they're not standing up there with a yardstick and a laser measuring device like oh, that's not that's 95 by 95 that's not going to cut it if it's clear but, and they know they can get their helicopter there they're going to do it but well, again from from the aerial view as you're coming into that scene you're looking at it and going yeah close enough it looks like it works well you know what works and know you, the pilots what doesn't. the pilots do and in my experience i know what will so uh, any LZ that isn't so like I said the state pre-designates a lot of them and where we are so we know because we go to the same ones a lot in the same areas right. but some sometimes you get like an off-site one where we do a high orbit and we'll do a low orbit to make sure that terrain's flat it's clear of obstruction the grass isn't too tall wires why well uh, listen there's a road there's wires uh, assume 100% of the time anything um, you look for any possible obstruction so again that all goes back to being safe and then ha- again having access it really depend on your fire department to have a proper LZ set up. Okay. What's after access? Oh, probably the one L, and that stands for lazy. Are you? Is Ooh. it? Is it close to shift change? Do you want to get off on time? 
call a helicopter. They don't mind. They're not going home at the same time either. <laughs> wow. No, uh, it's a lot like the fear factor. It's Laziness needs like a good self-reflecting thing. Like, Am I calling a helicopter just because I don't feel like driving 30 minutes and then 30 minutes back with a trauma patient? Right. Or is it shift change and you have a date? Like, Do your job. Do, yeah. <laughs> no, it's uh, what it is. And like I said, I don't listen. They're going to pay me for flying overtime anyway. Go ahead, call me, but don't do it and put me at risk because you're lazy. Well, and so there's an additional component to worry about that too. Is you have if you're flying someone for your convenience, it's entirely possible that you're putting that patient out on the back end because a lot of places per, like bill for their services. Yes, mm-hmm. and that that would be another that'll be another thing. Uh, what I was going to add to the end of this is uh, cost. But like, are you really flying this patient? Like, are they worth the thirty thousand dollar bill they're gonna? Because you were lazy to drive them to the hospital yourself. Because right. a lot of insurances don't cover helicopter transport. Which, again, is something, again, we don't talk about that at all. We just assume, like, you'll be fine. Send the aircraft. We'll yeah, deal with it fun. later. And a thirty grand bill, I can put people out of their homes. And then people mm-hmm. are bankrupt. Right. Yeah. Um, oh, look. Listen, For a broken ankle. Because you wanted to get home on time. Right. Yeah, Google, just Google the cost of helicopter transport. You'll see no shortage of stories. Um, NPR put one out recently. You will see no shortage. And if That'll listen. I love what I do. I hate what we do to people in terms of finances. It really it breaks my heart, and I just want to help people and do the right thing and do the honorable thing. And it really upsets me when some person has an unfortunate day and I gotta possibly bankrupt them because they're going by helicopter. Right. Good point. It's mm-hmm. no. It's a. And it's a. My professional ethics say get in there, do your job. My personal ethics are where I'm like a little. I'll never deny somebody care because I don't think they can pay a bill. That's wrong. Right. And it's not something I think about, but like I know what happens on the back end, and it really upsets me. All right. I, I think it's entirely valid. What's next? Time. Is time really a factor for your patient? It, are they really that sick where they got to get to a hospital faster? And, again, now knowing that it takes a little while for us to get up in the air, weather checks and all that, are you going to actually get there faster than the helicopter? Probably yes. But if you're talking about things that like you're – way out in the swamps and someone drops and they're having a heart attack and you're on hour from your local PCI center, absolutely call a helicopter. So I think that's that's an interesting point, at least like for me hearing about it, because, you know, we talk about like, well, will you get there faster in an aircraft? And it's like, well, yeah, probably. But I think a lot of times we know it's going to be, you know, a two or three minute differential. And I'm not sure that there's clinically significant outcomes that will change in those two or three minutes. No, probably not. <laughs> yeah. and in all honesty, no, I can't. I can't think of any time where someone QA'd me and be like, "Hey, if you just called a helicopter, um, they probably would have lived. Like, they would have got to the cath lab three minutes right. faster." Like, well, and this, and we've talked about this in previous episodes, but this is like the romanticizing the intervention. Yeah, you know, it's, where it's like, okay, well, like if I do this, then you know, it's going to make that much of a difference. Mm-hmm. You know, without really anything else kind of backing it. But what's next? All right, ours for real. Um, There's an E in there. Oh, actually, falter. Falter. There is an E. It's for extrication. Do you have a prolonged extrication going on? Yes, it's going to take a long time. Having a helicopter ready is probably a good idea, because if your patient's sick and they're pinned in that car or under that rubble, that would probably be a good indication for a helicopter. And it, so the the typical recommendation is a thirty minute extrication. Right. So do you find that it, I guess it's better for providers to say, like, you know what, we're about 10 minutes into this. I might as well put an aircraft up now. Uh, yeah. If, and if it, if, if it doesn't look like it's going to be resolved quickly, it, yeah. Because if you get there and you and the fire department's like, hey, it's going to take us at least 20 minutes right away and you, you can get a visualization, make a quick assessment on your patient, 
call a helicopter because we can be there in that twenty minutes, and then it's a. I think that's reasonable. A quick handoff. Yeah, I like sure. that. I, no. I, I, my, my because if, then by the time you're getting them out, you're loading them in the back, you guys are coming in. Just use your judgment. It's a real yeah. seamless transition. It works really well. I think 20 minutes is a really good number. Yeah. Well, and just with the, with all this conversation we've had about, you know, the amount of time it takes for an aircraft to spool up and to get up, like, out to us, it, it makes sense to be like, you know what, I'd rather get them up sooner than later. So from the time you called me getting to you, it could take 20 to 25 minutes. Right. And if you're having an execution going 20 minutes, yeah, that's probably about a, that's probably about a good time frame, at least generally speaking, in my uh, coverage area. Yep. Again, I can't assume for any place else where your helicopter might be 30 minutes away flight time, sure. which is an actual thing in places in the country. Right. Let's say more rural places, it's more difficult to yeah. get access to everything. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. All right. What's real? Real. Real, real. For, um, for real, real. It's oh, getting real. real. You just This is just being objective. Like, does your pa- is your patient really that sick? Or is it really need of a helicopter? And the truth is, like, is this... The helicopter transport's actually really slow, so you have to think of the real time it takes. The real so it's a risk benefit assessment. I think so, and I think it's just looking at the whole situation objectively and being like, does this patient really need to go by helicopter? Okay. Is this a really sick patient? Do I re- is it really going to take that amount of time to get to the hospital by ambulance, or do I really need to get them there faster by helicopter? All right, so we are starting to push up on a hard out, so let's wrap this up a little bit. Sure. Um, I've requested an aircraft. Aircraft comes and lands. I have a patient. I'm giving you a report. Tell me all the most important things that you need to know to help facilitate a better handoff. Uh, first, yeah, first and foremost, have a mist. Mist reports my preferred method. Um, for anybody who doesn't know what mist is, that is going to be mechanism or medical complaint. Um, so preferably, I want your demographics, name, age, sex, home address, um, and any mechanism of injury or where illnesses, ST elevations, car accident, how long it took to extricate them, safety device in place. Basically, kind of like what you're, you'd you give in a handoff to the hospital, the trauma team. Eyes for injuries, so from head to toe, tell me what you've identified and anything you suspect. Uh, signs and symptoms, pretty cut and dry right there. Right. Um, and then treatments. What have you done for them so far? Okay. And uh, from there, I can take your patient. Oh, and try to be, try to be organized. So I say that, I, I know in this situation it's very difficult to be, but if, if you can prevent all your wires and IV tubing and everything from getting crossed, it makes it easier and faster for us to package up the patient to get them out. Sure. Okay. Uh, yeah, just, that, uh, just a little, just like a housekeeping thing, really. Now, let's say you come into the back of my ambulance when I'm in the middle of doing a procedure, like, say, an intubation. Would you prefer that I do it? Stop. Just keep, just keep, keep going. going through don't it. let me break right. your flow. Don't don't stop what you're doing to give me a report. Don't even oh, acknowledge I, me. That's, a, that's always been the thing with me. It's like, okay, I'm ready to do this. Right. And then the flight crew comes in like, I know all okay, the listen, now what? I know all the mental preparation and physical preparation that goes into intubating somebody or performing any procedure. Just do it. Pretend I'm not there. I open the door. You can tell you can yell me to close the door. I don't care. I'll wait. Okay. If you're in the middle of tubing somebody, you need it quiet because the helicopter's running in the background, there's a lot of noise outside, you need to focus. Kick me out. What you're doing is uh, the patient comes first when we're on a scene like that. So if you have something you have to do for the patient, you have orders for do it. Okay. Cool. If you can, then if you can't do it, then you ask me and I'll help you or I'll do it myself. Great. So just one last operational point. If I have a, say, a bag of patient belongings from a trauma. Don't. I don't what, want it. What do I do with those? If, <laughs> if you took their shoes I off, their shoes it. are not coming with them. Plain and simple. There was <laughs> like, oh, here's his shoes. Like, I don't care. I don't have any place to stow them. I'm not going to put them back on his or her feet. Leave them. Give them to the police. They can drive any of their belongings up to the hospital. Um, if there's anything I want to have of theirs is identification. If they have a driver's license handy, 
Um, that's really would be the best to get them registered at the hospital as quickly as possible. That's the only thing I want to go with the patient. If you if you cut them naked, leave all their clothes there, put them in a bag, give them to the cops, they can drive right. it out. Cool, good. This has been um, this has been fairly enlightening. This is I think this is a lot yeah. of stuff that we I feel don't, like uh, I just kind of rambled a whole bunch right there, you guys. I'm sorry. No, no, no that no, this is perfect. So here's the thing: we we have one of the things that we talk about in EMS a lot is specialty care transport, right. whether it's ground SCT or it's air SCT, and we discuss it as this sort of magic entity that can do anything and. I, speaking of, like, having worked ground SCT, it's not magic in the back of the ambulance at all. If you've worked ground I, SCT, you've worked helicopter SCT. The environment is just different. Yeah, So and, and that, but that's kind of, like, the point we wanted to get across with this episode is that it's not this magical, like, fairyland environment. There's a lot of technicalities going into it. And, frankly, it's kind of an overused resource for a lot of things. 100%. And knowing the operational, uh, you know, expenses, whether it's a time expense or a monetary expense, is important in order to maintain you know, proper patient care and how to get people to the right facility in the right way. And I think we rely on an aircraft where it's like, you know what, you know, if you're 15 minutes away from the hospital, let's just call the helicopter. Not realizing, like, you could just get there. You, you Like, you could just go there. Yeah, I think... In right, the it's really a resource that can be used and misused. Right. Uh, yeah, and it really has to come down to, like, what's right for your patient and looking at, like, why you're doing it objectively. I think the falter in pretty good. Like I said, I've only discovered it recently. Um, but... Don't don't underestimate your ability, but certainly don't overestimate your ability either. If you need the helicopter, it's a resource for you. It's a tool you should use. Sure. Where everything evolves around ground EMS, right? What that that's the initial point of care from you know BLS and ALS response to the helicopter and and later on transport. Like it all starts there. So think objectively in what's best for your patient, not what's best for you. Right. I think that's a good way. So we're going to link uh, the, the false harmonic comes from an EMS one article. That's correct. So we're going to link to that in the show notes. Kevin, thanks so much for going over this stuff for the overrun. I'm Ed Bowder. I'm Dan Truster. I'm Kevin Mazza. I'm Anna Ryan. Make sure that you follow us on all the social medias, Instagram and Facebook at overrun productions and overrun EMS on Twitter. We are on iTunes, Google play, Stitcher, Alexa, Pl- Alexa, play the overrun. I hope that worked for somebody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Play That'd be weird because they're already listening. <laughs> Just play it again. Stop from Start the from the beginning. <laughs> so thanks again for listening, everybody. We'll talk to you next time. Get home and fly safe.